0: This is A Word Fitly Spoken, by words about reading the Scripture, about preaching the Scripture, and about the mission on which the Scripture sends all of us. We here at A Word Fitly Spoken aim to give you, the servant of Christ, more and more always from the fullness the Lord has given us in His holy word. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. Joining us today, Reverend Adam Kuntz, and we're back again talking about Walter's pastoral theology. Gentlemen, how are you? Really well. Thank you. How are you? Doing well. You know, Iowa, things pretty laid back. I guess we should transition into gratuitous weather posting now. Adam,
1: how are things out in the colonies? Uh, they're very nice. It it feels like fall now, so I'm I'm much happier and my wife from the land of ice and snow is also much happier with the cooler weather, so ever all is well. We received an inch of snow yesterday. Okay,
0: so we're, we're I not make we're fun not fun those
1: levels, but yeah, <laughs>
0: right. It's it's ridiculous. Uh, Zelwyn, how are things in the igloo?
2: Well, It warmed up to thirty yesterday, so there you go.
1: Didn't even have to put on his his buckskins or anything. The funny the funny thing is that by virtue of genetics, Zelwyn cannot be joking. We know that it actually <laughs> did warm up to thirty. That that wasn't a joke <laughs> right. for those of you
2: at home. <laughs> you have to translate the, the Scandinavian talk into English. <laughs> <laughs> and folks, genetics just, well,
1: it's law. You know, I don't know what else to say. Welcome to America, Zelwin. It's nice to have you. It's nice to have you. you,
0: <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. can stay a while. He's one of the good ones. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Specifically in this episode, we're going to talk about Walter on pastoral care. Now, that sounds pretty general, but we do have a few specific things we're going to look at. You know, how does a pastor care for a soul in certain specific situations? You know, why is visitation important? What does visitation look like? That sort of thing. The concept of individual visitation, not so much in the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod in many ways, but in the church at large and in other denominations, I think the the idea of individual visitation has fallen away. Would you guys agree or disagree with that?
1: Yeah, I would agree with that which you have only to be a pastor and visit a hospital or be hospitalized yourself to know that that has largely been outsourced certainly in hospitals and and nursing homes and places like that to full-time chaplains of indeterminate confession who go from room to room visiting but the reason that that can even really exist is simply because pastors of congregations are often neglecting that practice. Even if the church is very small in my area, which is very predominantly evangelical Lutheran church in America, so the you know larger, definitely more liberal Lutheran denomination, the ELCA often outsources things like communion of the sick or communion of the homebound or visiting people who are going to have surgery, things like that, things that I do personally. Those are done by laity, even in ELCA churches that are you know a half or the third the size of my own. So I think a lot of visitation, you know, and I, I mean there I mean apart from the issue of the late of laity administering communion. I mean it's fine for folks from the congregation to visit people in the hospital. That's a great thing. But the notion that the pastor would visit you individually, it has been lost even in denominations like other Lutherans where it once existed, not to speak of like big box churches and stuff like that where it never existed. You know, you would you, you barely even speak individually with a senior pastor of a very large church, let alone
2: have him actually visit you in the hospital. I feel like I might be revealing some skeletons in the closet here, but of course, I grew up in the ELCA, and I can distinctly remember the pastor of the congregation I grew up in visiting my family at our home once when I was growing up. And it was rather exceptional. I don't even remember what the occasion was, but the fact that I can remember it so distinctly as being so exceptional should say something about how it has fallen away as a practice, even, you know, 15, 20 years ago.
0: Yeah. And it's, and, and see, that's the other side of it. We, we sort of understand hospital visits and, you know, sick calls, shut-ins, that sort of thing. But what's really been lost is, is the individual house to house visitation of the members. You know, you don't need an excuse, you know, like an injury or a tragedy to go and visit the flock. But visitation, pastoral visitation, was for a long time considered part and parcel of the pastoral call.
1: Yeah. And I think that a lot of things have replaced it, not least of which is church activity. So that whether it's a programmed activity or anything else going on at the church, activity replaces for the pastor individual time with people in their lives. Would you say that that's a good substitute? I, I I don't think so because church activities are fundamentally different from being in somebody's home and, you know, hearing about their life story and, you know, where their where their parents grew up and stuff like that. The kind of things that you talk about when you're in somebody's living room that you're not usually going to talk about if you're having a church work day or you're having a committee meeting, you know, to get set up for some big celebration or something. Church activity isn't really a replacement for visitation because the basic condition of visitation, whether it's in the hospital or in the home or wherever it may be, is that the pastor is stepping into an an already ongoing life situation of the person and can in that place at that very time, apply God's word to that person's life. So it's it's not the same thing as just, you know, I saw you at church and we talked for five minutes about how we both like baseball or something like that.
0: Now, before we go into Walter a little more and some of these specific situations, what would a typical non-shut-in, just
1: regular member visit look like? Yeah, when I do this, I'll go in and we'll sit down and we'll talk... If it's a regular visit, not a not a shut in that I see, you know, on a monthly basis, but somebody that I see less frequently will catch up or with new members. I always visit new members as soon as absolutely possible or, you know, pr- perspectives. We'll get to know each other a little bit. And then after, you know, some sort of exchange and it kind of depends on the person and the culture, like in in my congregation, we have people from all over the country. So social expectations are very different if you're dealing with somebody from the Northeast versus, let's say, like the Midwest or the Deep South, all of which we have, you know, you can, the conversation is going to take a shorter time or a longer time. And once it's kind of like eased in, then we'll talk about the church, introduce them to the church. If they're not a Lutheran yet, we'll talk about some distinctives about Mount Calvary and the LCMS. We'll talk about things like why we do things the way we do, or what we believe. We'll talk about their church background, regardless whether it's LCMS their whole life or anything else. And we'll talk about some sort of concerns in their life, what's going on with them, or I'll try to glean from the conversation, you know, what what is something that's obviously been a challenge throughout their life, you know. And this can take, I mean, whatever their culture, this could, this could this can take, you know, at least an hour to get to know somebody that well, so that they feel cared for and loved and, at the end, I'll either read a scripture and have communion if it's like a shut-in visit and you know they can't come to church, or if it's a member who comes to church regularly or a perspective or whatever, you know we'll have a little, we'll have a scripture that applies to their situation, and then I'll pray a prayer. I'll say, "I can I pray for you?" and they'll join in at the end of that with the Lord's prayer. But before we do the Lord's prayer together, I'll pray over the specific concerns that they have, the things they expressed any thanksgiving that they have. I'll thank God that they've brought this person to this congregation, given them faith, enlightened them with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, that's that's kind of what it looks like for me. I know that other people will vary, but that's that's a rough outline of pretty much anything that I do.
2: Sure. Zelwyn, would, would you say yours looks pretty similar? Yeah, no, I mean, the general outlines are going to be pretty similar. Adam talked about cultural expectations, which I think is an important point, because I often find with my home visits that I spend a great deal of time just talking because the social expectations in up here in the, the Upper West or the Upper Midwest or whatever you want to call this area. Scandinavia. Scandinavia, <laughs> German. Southern kind of the, Canada. They, they like talking and they like to get to know people. In fact, they've even mentioned in passing of pastors who have come in and while they appreciated everything that they've done, because they come from a a culture which doesn't really appreciate and value that talking and just getting to know one another it almost seems kind of weird it's like he was just you know sitting there or something like that (laughs) (laughs) while they're still being nice because of course we are you know Scandinavians they expect that kind of social interaction and then of course you know moving into talking about specifics and talking about the word and talking about know, communion and all that.
0: You know, guys, that's actually a really good point, you know, the discussion of the cultural differences. This is much more common than we want to acknowledge, but, you know, a guy gets sent to a church or takes a call to a church to an area that he knows nothing about and he doesn't do his due diligence to, one, know the culture, you know, and know the people, and you get a lot of conflict with that. Like, you have to bend a little. You know, you send some guy from... Upper Peninsula, Michigan to Appalachia, and sometimes it doesn't go so well, you know, or you send um, a guy from Alabama, I don't know what the opposite of Alabama is, up to Connecticut or something,
1: you know,
0: and and that really, yeah, I mean, that really is something that we need to be cognizant of, because that's, that's, that's a reality. And it's
1: not a trivial thing. Different cultures act differently. Right. I mean, we're, we're in a national church body, but I mean, culturally and functionally, America is more like the European Union than it is like, I don't know, Finland. It's not a, (laughs) it's not a unitary culture spread over just a large geography. It's, it's a massive range of cultures. And, you know, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, it's, it's really important for things like pastoral leadership, but it's also important for things like, how do I express that I care about you? And that, that is often very culturally specific and you, you have to know that kind of stuff.
0: And and as pastor, you know, we do hope
2: that you do sincerely care for these people, right? (laughs) You know. And just as a capstone to my comment, then my visitations usually end up taking a couple hours at when I'm doing the home ones. So I mean, just that that length is also cultural. Yeah,
0: mine are a little tricky, you know, because I'm dealing with like really odd schedules, immigrants, that sort of thing. And a guy with a mustache comes knocking on your door, you know, sometimes it's a little hard to get an answer, but, uh, but once my foot's in the door, it's very similar. And you always just want to do that. You know, you want a conversation, but you do want to make time for prayer and the word, because that's what you're there for. You are the pastor. And so all good things. So Walter's going to be trained, like we are, like we were, to go and to do visits. So, we agree that generally everyone should be visited in some form or another. But let's look at some of these special cases that he that he lists out. And we're just going to go through a list kind of quickly and then unpack some specific situations in the other segments. So, Adam Rosellin, what's one of the first specific cases that we see?
1: The most obvious one and the one with which people will be most familiar as the subject of visits are the sick. People who are undergoing from a spiritual point of view a particularly trying time because sickness brings to light in a person's soul thoughts about what they've done with their lives and and why this is happening to them and, and what will happen to them in the future. So the sick are probably the most obvious folks to visit along with the dying, which is just sickness in extremity. The sick and the dying are the ones that pretty much anyone would agree a pastor should visit, and in those cases that the pastor should be called.
2: Well, and I think in the case of, especially with the dying, for a pastor to neglect that duty is not soon to be forgotten. If he fails to visit someone who is on the deathbed, I think your people are going to not, they're not going to forget that. Yeah, that's one of the reasons that we do
0: you know, really have to be at the ready. I mean pastors are on call. That's part of the that's part of the gig. And that's why we need to be careful not to be found in states of say inebriation. Or if we can avoid it, you know, we don't need to be out of contact, (laughs) that sort of thing. You know, you don't you don't want to be faced with the unfortunate situation of why didn't you make it to the hospital or to the bedside in time and you say, well, sorry I really tied one on and was sleeping it off. You know, maybe, maybe Again, I'm making yeah, just, out just out of-
1: hypothetically, I uh-
0: <laughs> be ready in season, you know, and out of season. Yeah, there you uh-
1: go. <laughs> there you
0: go. It is what it is, you know.
1: And, and somehow we've gone, we've gone full circle to Gerberding saying, you know what, prohibition really wasn't so bad. But anyway, I repeat <laughs> like myself. It's not going to come back. Although, you know, when we finally <laughs> run for office, that blue
0: law campaign is going to be pretty, pretty sweet. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. <laughs> so yeah so so sick and dying and then uh, what would be next then
1: he also reckons the erring among those who should be visited and this is this is rather a delicate thing in the sense of i don't think one wants to jump all over any error that anyone may manifest out of simple you know lack of knowledge of theology i think here he means those who are persistently erring who are cherishing some error or another, and especially who want to spread that error within the congregation, the pastor will want to be diligent about visiting with them and training them better in the way of righteousness.
0: Yeah, and it still makes it into our prayer books. That's the funny thing, you know. We do pray for those who err and and that kind of thing, but sometimes we leave it at that because it's a lot easier just to <laughs> pray about it and let it let it stew. Somewhere else,
2: <laughs> be somebody else's problem,
0: <laughs> right? Let's let the next guy do it. I'm all right. So we got the erring next. We're gonna have the mentally ill and the suicidal. I'm gonna put those kind of together there. If that's kosher, yeah, it okay. is.
1: And I think it's important to say that Walther recognizes a mental illness as a reality and a spiritual danger.
0: Yeah, melancholia is something that our early
1: founders really seem to struggle with. Yeah, personally, I mean, I I, I, I want to say it, I think it's this month's Lutheran Witness that President Harrison has that article about Walther's breakdown, but you can find breakdowns in many of the early Missouri fathers in their lives. And, and only some of it, I mean, I've, I've seen it attributed to, well, it was the Victorian era, people carried heroic workloads, you know, Dickens wrote, you know, 800 page novels with regularity. But I mean, Abraham Kuyper worked similar amounts. Herman Bavinck produced a much larger systematic theology than Pieper, and they did not suffer
0: that Protestant work ethic, fam.
1: Something, <laughs> you know? something like that. I mean, you you have you have uh, just unbelievable amounts of work getting done by. I mean, it's it's according to many people, one of the most inventive periods in human history. You know, the, the end of the nineteenth century. So. But it's, it's definitely a strain in Missouri's early history is the frequency with which the fathers have breakdowns. So they, they definitely recognize mental illness as a, as a thing to be dealt with uh, gently, but carrying with it its own spiritual dangers.
0: And you, know, and, you know, that's one where we as pastors need to address mental illness with the skills we have as pastors and with the calling that we have as pastors. We are not clinical psychologists, not, not even if we pretend to be one on social media, And so we need to be careful about that, that, you know, what, what is
1: a pastor, what is a pastor to do in the face of, let's say someone with suicidal tendencies? A pastor is to reaffirm for that person. What is the truth from God's word that human life is precious, that God is the one who kills and makes alive, that it is not that person's prerogative to kill himself And that he should provide no room for Satan to enter. He should not decorate his heart for Satan, as the formula so memorably puts it. So I I I think that I think that whenever you're dealing with this, yeah, you're not you're not there to fix everything. It is not the pastor's calling or the church's calling to fix everything that is medically or psychologically unfortunate about a situation. You are there to proclaim God's truth in all of these situations, because his word always applies to their life, whatever the temptation or danger may be.
0: Right, and we'll revisit this a little bit later too. So the, we have
1: the last few categories are interesting. Those entangled in lawsuits. <laughs> I, 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 you know, I, I think about I think about Walther's <laughs> businessmen in his four congregation arrangement in St. Louis, and yeah, this is this is especially a difficulty for the wealthy, for those who have a lot of affairs in this world you know, things happen, they want what is due them. The temptation in lawsuits, I I think that he is, he seems not to be thinking of something that is forbidden by scripture in 1 Corinthians 6, where Christians would be suing one another. I think that he's thinking of those who are engaged in lawful legal processes with non-Christians, similar to how the Augsburg Confession says it is lawful for Christians to engage in lawsuits. And, but in that case, I mean, there is there is there there is a feeling of righteous wrath that can enter in that, that may be unhelpful, dangerous. And so I think he the pastor needs to, you know, admonish the person in that situation to seek only what is due him.
0: And then next we have the criminally accused or those actually in prison and those convicted. That's another one that seems, I think, pretty natural to us, though.
2: Well, I think it seems natural to us, but it might be even something that has kind of slipped away again. I mean, Walther is talking, I mean, he talks very clearly about ministering to someone who's about to be executed, for example. Someone who's actually facing the death penalty. And what do you say in a situation like that? You know? You shouldn't have did this in Texas? You should have have crossed the state line. It (laughs) turns out the entire past was
1: Texas. So. (laughs)
2: was lower too, strange, <laughs> strange. But but a, but a call to real repentance and even while facing the reality of worldly punishments that you're not going to get away from the the consequences of your actions, but you can repent of them before you suffer the the due penalty in this life. I mean, that's kind of what right. he's getting exactly. at. Exactly. I think yep. with some of this, so.
0: And then lastly, we have the possessed, which we're going to talk about detail um, right this yeah we'll get
1: into it later this is definitely the juiciest one and the one in which there's a lot of modern interest you know so we will discuss the witches of brooklyn who are trying to hex justice kavanaugh later on and talk about what's wrong what's wrong with them so <laughs> right. and the lord's god the
0: lord god's um commands concern, <laughs> <so>. <laughs> all right folks <laughs> stay tuned we'll be right back with more word fitly spoken All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. Posting. That's Word Fitly Posting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. we're back. This is a Word Fitly Spoken. Willie Grills, and Heidi, Adam Kuntz talking about pastoral care and pastoral visitation. So we went through um, a quick list of, of situations where the pastor ought to visit. So let's dig into them, mostly individually, and do what we can find here. So first and foremost, let's talk about visitation of the sick.
1: Yeah, Walther shows you that sometimes nothing ever changes. The past may be Texas, but it was a different Texas. And he says, first of all, that the preacher should come even without an invitation. So if you wait for someone to invite you, it may never happen. That doesn't mean that you're barging in on them or beating down the door, screaming, let me in, let me in or anything. But if you hear that someone is sick you should go he may be incapacitated his family may not be thinking of it a lot of times today his family may not be christian so it's not they may not even be hostile to you they may just not think of it at all
0: yeah it doesn't occur to you you know you're just not
1: on the on the list right exactly and he's also specific that the pastor should not shrink from what he disc he discusses as disgusting Or violent maladies. And here, Walther goes into what is actually a traditional locus in Lutheran pastoral theology, which is the question, it's traditional in all pastoral theology what do you do during a plague? And that might seem abstract, but in the case of many illnesses throughout Christian history, it's really not. I mean, we're at the 100th anniversary of the absolute peak of the influenza epidemic of 1918 which killed millions more people than the First World War. And that was a live question then. You know, what do you do? Do you flee? Do you run away? The government in that epidemic forcibly closed churches in many cities, but that doesn't prevent the pastor from visiting individual homes. So Walter's answer to that question is, if there's more than one pastor, then one should be chosen who is healthiest, but that one should shy away from no one's home. He should visit the dying regardless of the illness that they have. That's a kind of potential martyrdom that is built into the position in that way, that you cannot flee the plague. And Luther has a couple different discussions of that as well.
2: I think of examples today, I mean, maybe not such violent maladies as like the plague, but like I remember one occasion on Vicarage where we had a a church member who had MRSA And, you know, that's something that extremely contagious like that. You can take precautions to guard yourself against it. But just because they have MRSA doesn't mean you shouldn't go. You should still try to visit them as, as much as you can.
0: Yeah. And that doesn't mean like if you have a guy with some kind of immune deficiency... And you got a cold that you go in there and say, "Yeah, I don't need gloves," and then you know, spit in your hands and slick your hair back and go lay hands on them or something. <laughs> <laughs>
1: that you know that I don't. Both the greasy hair and the laying hands on it just felt a little too southern to me. Just there, say what you know. want,
0: but I can paint a picture.
2: Uh, <laughs> I don't but, know, greasy. That seems never mind. Anyway, go ahead. But but the, the fact that we we should be so willing. To go even into harm's way to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ is really the point here that I remember Walter talking about a young pastor who heroically went into a plague situation and lost his life as a result of it. Right. He refers to him as, as I don't remember his name, sainted something or the other. And there is there is a heroicness to it. But like you say, that is just kind of, kind of occupational
0: yeah, reality. And when
2: you consider our Lord Jesus
0: Christ too, who... You know, touches lepers and and other people with other maladies and other infirmities. You know, there's an example there too. You know, maybe not quite that intimate for us, but nevertheless, you do see a good example of what to do. Don't don't shirk from people simply because they're they're suffering something that is to put it mildly off putting. Yeah, (laughs) you know, and and oftentimes more severe than that. I think one of the things that we have to battle against more than deadly plague or even the potential for infection is, is simple squeamishness. Sure. They're, that's just the way some people are. Uh, they don't do well with blood or puke or,
2: or whatever. Or seeing, or seeing more of a patient than you intended to. I mean, yeah, it just it, happens, it happens so. you know, it's just, you know, part of it. And, and, and you become
0: desensitized to that eventually if you're not used to it already. And so, you know, you just have to expect that they don't teach you that. You know, that's not the part of the public image of a pastor. A lot of people have this idea of some dude who gets up and, you know, he preaches, he does a few things, but they don't really think about the guy getting his hands dirty and the guy really being there when it counts. And that's probably pretty good, though, that, that a lot of that work goes unseen and quiet. But the Lord sees it and he knows and there will be recompense. So that's good. So yeah, so that's a, see, how did Walther put that again? I mean, he's, he's pretty, he's pretty clear, like no matter how disgusting, yeah, or virulent. Was that, was that Walther's words?
1: Yeah, those are Walther's words. And, and I think it's, it, it really is an, it really is analogous to your proper work as a pastor, because if you are squeamish about what happens to people's bodies when they're sick or dying and what, what you have to see, I mean, or, or smell or whatever it may be, you then you're probably going to be squeamish about their souls because that stuff is even more shocking and disgusting yeah. and you need to get used to that too. Yeah. So when yeah. he, he when he, he talks about visits and I, I think this is helpful because I think sometimes pastors don't honestly know what they're doing. And, and we, we went over what we do as far as visits go, but just to see Walter has some helpful suggestions, always talking about an illness as what he describes as a a visitation of God or a, a providential visitation, it is something that God has put in this life right now for that person's good. Right, right. And th- that that is an unusual thought, even for many Christians today. That yeah,
0: and that and it's very different from kind of a papist dolorism. You know, you know, where it's just sort of pain for pain's sake, you know, or trying to trying to gain something through the infliction of pain or or that sort of thing. It's it's very, very different from that aspect, talking about illness being providential.
2: To go to, I mean, to go someone who's dying, for example, someone who's on their deathbed, and to talk about it as being meant for their good is something that's probably going to strike people as being very odd because we would say death is the enemy. But it is through these afflictions through this cross that we are called to bear and ultimately dying in jesus that we are made like him and so yeah it is absolutely for our benefit even if we personally cannot always see how yeah and i mean i mean
1: the only the only enemy of us is is unbelief death is not an enemy this is something that jesus can use to his glory he can use sickness and death itself to his glory, and make that part of his victory over sin and death, even now. It's important to remember Job 14, Psalm
0: 139, right? That our days are numbered by the Lord. Psalm 90, for that matter. Psalm 90, yeah. It's almost as if this is important and God keeps repeating it. (laughs) So, so yeah, I mean, in that case, it is explicitly providential. You know if we don't believe in some kind of robust providence where is the comfort you know that we can give them you know showing that that God from first to last has 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 set your days before you he has redeemed you also in his providence you know all of these things we have to we have to express that God is in control and by proxy i think the pastor has to be then composed himself
1: right Yeah. And, and, and Walther is very clear that the pastor should not promise any medical change for the better. I I don't think that that means that when you visit, you need to be morose. And as the person is (laughs) all downhill from here, Frank, right. You know, as the person is saying, well, you know, I think they're going to discharge me, you know, later this afternoon, pastor, you say, well, you could die today too. You know, like, you don't, um, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to make up (laughs) awful things, you know, but, but he does say that, that don't just don't say things that you cannot say. You cannot promise any medical change. He says, but you should always prepare the one who is suffering for death. And I love this quote. This is on page 339 in the CPH edition. The more earnestly one prepares himself for death, the greater the profit he will have from the preparation even if he remains alive and that is that is a really salutary use of these visitations of god where even if you recover and you live another 40 years after whatever illness it is that you have you have come so close to eternity that you see everything more clearly so the pastor is always preparing people to die i think that's true every sunday but especially when you're visiting somebody, you're preparing him for death, which is which is a wonderful thing for him spiritually.
2: Yeah, we, we think of, of thinking about death as being somehow macabre or somehow, like you say, morose. Yeah, but it doesn't have to be when we think about what Jesus has promised for us, that death, like you said, is not the enemy, that it is a a gateway in a sense to something far greater than we can possibly imagine. That we are being conformed to become like Jesus, you know, conformed to the image of the Son. All of these things and thinking about the reality of death can prepare us for it. And we should be prepared through that kind of contemplation. I don't mean we have to focus on it, monomania kind of focus on death or something like that. But just to seriously think about the fact that our days are in his hand.
0: Yeah, and that doesn't mean you have to explicitly, you know, get up and say every day or every sermon You know, open with brothers, we're all going to die. Any, you know, our exhortations, if you were to, I mean, I'm going to sound really old fashioned, but an exhortation against worldliness is part of this. Because the Christian is to really grow to hate the world and its ways. It's preparing us that that rejection of the world is preparing us for eternity with God. It's our hope is in removal from from these things. And and so, the more Christian, I guess we'll say we can become. Again, it's all it's all moving toward toward that last step. Maybe I'm a little off base here, but I think you guys know what I'm trying to what I'm trying to say.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that the reason that the world portrays thinking about death as morose and therefore avoids it is because it is this life only that the world possesses. And so right. it, it clings to it with a, with a jealous rage when faced with the prospect, the certain prospect of life's end. We don't look at death the same way. We are not worried about death the same way. We do not grieve as those without hope because we already have, through Christ's grace, eternal life. We already enjoy that so that our death becomes merely a portal and when we die, we fall asleep in Jesus to, to waken him at the last day. So I think preparing ourselves for that reality, understanding that that is all true. Now we have already died with Christ is salutary for us, no matter how healthy we believe ourselves to be.
0: And you don't, I mean, and that doesn't mean then that you walk around with a stupid grin on your face, just waiting to die, <laughs> uh, no, you know,
1: just waiting to get off the elevator. Just, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. <laughs>
0: There is, you know, there's sadness to it because part of a sinful and fallen world and grief right. is real and it hurts, you know, so so we're all we're realistic here. We don't want to paint this silly picture, you know, that, that some people want to do like Christian joy or Christian hope is often expressed differently than worldly joy and worldly hope. And it's always in the midst of a suffering and sinful world. And it's our job as shepherds to guide the sheep through it. And so, again, that's why we're here talking about visitation and what we do with people in these situations. So where are we at here? So we've got, there's a bit of a spiritual examination that goes on. Walter admonishes not to make overly long addresses and and long prayers.
1: Yeah, I would say as, as we guide the sheep, I think it's important to talk about like explicitly how we do that because Walter has some yes. specific recommendations about how you should guide the sheep and this this plays into the role of ritual or liturgy in the Christian life, even in individual situations, because when you're one-on-one with somebody or it's, you know, the family around the bedside and the pastor, I think the tendency of many modern people is to become extremely informal the smaller the group becomes. And so the, the pastor becomes very folksy, maybe more than he usually is. And yeah, you're not you're not using your pulpit projection voice or something at the bedside or in the nursing home necessarily. But <laughs> Walther's liturgical recommendation is that whenever whenever the sick are visited, that you have confession and absolution, as well as the words of institution, and that you should also use the the admonition prior to the supper. And that's going to be most familiar to. Our listeners from Monday Thursday, when it is the opening of the whole divine service on Monday Thursday, that service of corporate confession and absolution, talking about that we have come together to receive the Lord's supper and these are the purposes for which it was instituted and we should have a lively repentance, things like that. What I think is interesting about this is that I mean I do I do something like that. I do not do the admonition. I've never done the admonition to anyone. I and maybe I'm singling myself out on this call by saying that. But, <laughs> but the idea that you would replicate to some degree, both in how you ad- address, Walter says the pastor should always wear his clerical collar when administering Holy Communion, how you are dressed and how you conduct yourself provides the formality, the ritual, the beauty of the church in some kind of form, even to the sick man, even to the dying man. Yeah, is that is that kind of what you guys do? I mean, do you have a, a more or less ritual, or or yeah, what do you do?
0: Mine is basically, and I think like most guys, it's basically a a miniature divine service or a shortened divine service. I don't, you know, go full vestments, and I don't know too many people that do, but right. it is always clerical collar. As uh, I'd actually do use a visitation stole, but that's you know, of all things, adiaphora. That's certainly that's certainly an adiaphora but every, yeah everything looks that way but it but it's good and especially here where I'm dealing with a lot of new lutherans it's very consistent with what we do in church and and you guys see the fruit of that more than I do where you have lifelong lutherans and even when they're when they're struggling you know physically during these times of trial they can recall these words without having to have booklets and that sort of thing right you know right. you using what they know is
2: very good and salutary uh, zellwin well i'm I think part of the reality of, of my parish and when I do make my shut-in visits, for example, I tend to not have all the time in the world, which is unfortunate, but that's just kind of the way it is. I usually just tend to focus on the service of the sacrament, usually, you know, a prayer with uh, the words of institution and then a distribution. So, I mean, it's it's pretty, it's and pretty straightforward. And I'm usually wearing all right? denim, but you know. <laughs> I do have my collar on and stuff like that but but that's that's just kind of the realities of where I am. I just have to keep I don't want to say I'm hurrying things I just have to be conscious of getting on to the next place as well
1: yeah yeah i would i would I would say that you know regardless of the amount of ceremony that one has that one follows some kind of ritual rather than resorting to a common American familiarity. Is that yeah?
0: Everything just becomes so colloquial yeah, uh, because it's less awkward somehow. I guess that's right for some. People.
1: Yeah, and what's funny about that is that people respect these really exacting rituals where they are done by things like you know the folks who guard the tomb of the unknown soldier in you know Arlington Cemetery. But when it comes to the things of God, I think somehow we think it will be easier if we're just informal and chummy, but the point of the ritual is not so that the pastor feels friendly. The point of the ritual is to make it easier for the person to understand that something sacred is happening and to understand how that unique sacred thing applies to his very messy, sick, dying life. And so the point of ritual is not that I always feel completely comfortable doing it. It's simply that the ritual can help that person understand that God has stepped into his life and is caring for him by means of something which is very familiar from a very different time when he, when he could drive himself to church or whatever it may be. Here's that same thing applied to his individual life as it ebbs away. That's very profound for people when they can remember the liturgy, when they can remember the Lord's Prayer. When they hear the pastor saying the words that the pastor who baptized them 87 years ago said, "You're ju- as the pastor, you're just a guy in that chain across the generations. So just stick with the ritual because it's not about you. It's about God applying his word to this man's life as he dies or as he suffers.
0: Amen. We're going to take another break. On the other side of the break, we're going to talk about demonic possession. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast, available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash wordfitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more Word Fitly Spoken. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grills, Zell, and Heidi Adam Kuntz talking Walter and pastoral visitation and pastoral care. So now we come to the subject that Walter actually devotes the most ink to, and it's one that's very popular, not only because we're recording it in October, the Halloween season, but also because this genre of horror fiction is, is a perennial favorite, demonic possession. it It certainly has captivated our culture. You know, not just William Friedkin's 1973-74 masterpiece, The Exorcist, or should I say William Peter Blatty's novel, too. But also even now we're seeing, you know, Muslim exorcism movies, and we're seeing, you know, uh, Jewish exorcism movies with evil Dybbuk boxes and things like that. So demonic possession, that is our subject of our final segment. And so we're just going to jump right into that. And first, my question is, why do you think that this subject so captivates people?
1: I think on a very base level, simply because it's so strange and actual demonic possession is so physically remarkable and uh, monstrous that people are fascinated by the prospect and they're fascinated by cases and the fascination extends well beyond the boundaries of the church. People are very uninterested in the details. Let's say the theological meanings of holy baptism even though it is the seal of eternal life but they're very interested in the notion that someone could do something extremely strange as we see demons in the gospels doing this is a subject which christians and non-christians alike are very interested in as you were saying and which i think as our own nation becomes increasingly non-christian will only increase in frequency that we need to discuss it because people will be trifling with things which in former ages, they either would never think to mess around with, or which they would be actively, in some cases, even prosecuted for trifling with in many Christian societies. But now it is entirely free to mess around with demonic things, with satanic arts, as the catechism puts it. So the subject is only going to become more important as time goes on.
2: You mentioned, I mean, Halloween coming up here. Of course, the much of the interest, I think, is driven by uh, Hollywood and making, uh, you mentioned The Exorcist. I can think of any number of movies. The Exorcism of Emily Rose was one that was pretty popular a while back. There was also some other ones I can't think of names. I mean, I'm sure our, our listeners can think of several. Yeah, we can but, rattle off a lot of a lot of possession movies. Sure.
0: You know, <laughs> well, some we, good, some not so good. The Rotten Tomatoes scores are not, you know, equal well, across the board. The, the,
2: the great distance between the Exorcist and the Exorcist two just kind of goes to show you that <laughs> This is <it's>, true. <laughs> it, it it is what it is. Yeah, you know, oh, I agree. Yeah, I know Adam <laughs> Tola totally knows what we're talking about. Hello, here. fellow kids. <laughs> a, um, I, know. Know. Well, I have a, also
1: seen some motion pictures at the Nickelodeon.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but but my point is is that because it's become so popular and because it's become so much more visualized, I think that it does indeed drive the interest in the subject. Yeah.
0: So before we talk about the care and what we do in these situations, we want to talk a little bit about the history. But first, I want to start with the Bible and what symptoms... Of possession we might see. And I do think the Bible gives us some clues here. So if you're going to beat
1: somebody who might be possessed, what could you expect? You could expect something that would be described as superhuman, whether it is superhuman knowledge, knowledge of events, almost certainly unknown to such a person, knowledge of languages, completely unknown to that person, capacity, physical capacities that such a person of that build or age or sex could not otherwise possess. Demons display through human beings what is altogether non-human. And so Mm -hmm. you're looking for human bodies or human voices to be used in ways which cannot be natural to them.
2: Yeah, I mean, you think of like the biblical examples of some of the possessed men Carrying themselves away from restraint, I am trying to think yeah. of which answers that was exactly. Well, you but, have the
0: demoniac among the tombs too, who is right. self mutilating mm-hmm. as well, and he could not be bound. You know that that's interesting.
2: Describe and the one describing himself as legion, for we yeah. are many. You yeah. know that idea too. So or yeah, and 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 demons are always. I mean, demons hate human beings.
1: They do not. They do not possess them with any good in mind. So the demonic is always harmful to the one who is possessed right um you have the boy who is thrown sometimes into fire and sometimes into water um yep so it's it's always destructive of god's creation in human beings it's either exploitative or it is and or it is destructive
2: the woman who is bound by satan yeah, i mean all of those things too yep yep and you see
0: these you know, these signs sort of repeated you know, in all these cases, I mean, sometimes some are present, not others, but the list of symptoms has been pretty consistent, you know, all throughout church history. You do see superhuman things, but again, the manifestations some sometimes aren't as spectacular as what Hollywood would have you believe, too. It can cut both ways.
1: Yeah, and there, there are things like with Paul's exorcism of the slave girl, which would be now classified simply under some sort of like psychological anomaly some kind of telepathy or something but is itself a kind of possession so it doesn't have to be physically strange right it could be it could be knowledge which is extremely strange and inexplicable
0: yeah and it's not something it's something that we that it's almost taken lightly you know you have these exorcism ministries you know by these churches and they get TV shows and that sort of thing. And it's not something to, that we should really be playing around with, lest you find yourself like the Jewish exorcists in Acts 19, right?
2: Sons of Shiva.
0: Yeah. You know, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? You know, you don't want to end up in in the boat they found themselves in. But it's not something to be taken lightly. And at the same time, it's not something to be cast aside as as superstition. And so what is Walther then? Why does Walther devote so much time to this?
1: Walther believes it's obviously an ongoing pastoral problem of some kind, which is why he gives you a list of signs. And this is certainly worth discussion. Walther believes that not only can the ungodly be physically possessed by demons as a divinely ordained affliction, but he says that also the children of God, as God, quote, reproves and tests the devout, with physical chastisement may be possessed. And he's quoting there the dogmatician whom he taught uh, many, many times over at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis, J.W. Byer. The notion that God's children could be physically possessed by demons appears to me to be manifestly unbiblical. I, I, I simply don't see a justification for thinking that those in whom the Holy Spirit dwells
0: yeah. Well you have it in paper too, and he just yeah. it's just a line right. as if it's assumed.
2: Right. You know, or it's right. it's a little more than that, but it's not a long treatment of the subject. Right. I think the the most common presentation of it, I mean, I'm just trying to think about back to the dogmaticians that I've read on the mm-hmm. subject. I think they commonly present it as, you know, the demoniacs who are freed from their possession then go on to give thanks to God for being freed. And so they, I think they assume from that transition that mm-hmm. the faith was there. It just could not express itself, that there was no conversion, so to speak. It was just the, the oppression was removed and then faith could resume its normal course or something like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I think it's important here to speak very carefully to say that a Christian could be afflicted by demons as a Christian may be afflicted by sins, but to be Physically possessed to be under the control of Satan it cannot be possible for a Christian. Um, he, he's under the lordship of Christ.
0: An external affliction or oppression is certainly possible and indeed very common. Right, I would say. Right, you know, and and of course a, a Christian's not immune to that. But yeah, we're talking about a demon literally inhabiting, occupying the space, you know, where the Holy Spirit once was. You know, the, the, it's just. I don't know. I think I'm with Adam on this one. It's a little it's a little hard to swallow. And
2: I'm not and I'm not saying that I totally agree with Walther on this point either. I'm just trying to say I think this was their reasoning. Right. Sure. However, yeah. how valid it may be. And and just and just maybe also to the point here, we would say that if if Satan is in command, you know, that that sin is also having the upper hand, which I think is why you guys are are against this idea that a Christian could be possessed. Because we are not under the dominion of sin. Right. Exactly. Right.
0: And really, I suppose, though, too, when you come into, you know, a situation where you're dealing with a possessed person, your first question isn't going to be, are they a Christian or not? The first the first goal is to get rid of this thing. You know, a caveat, you know, right at the front is that there is a difference between possession and mental illness. But both are real. Right. You know, so we don't want to conflate the two or, or, or simply explain possession away as mental illness or to explain every mental illness as demons. We don't want to see demons crouch behind every bush and every tree, as some, as some people are want to do.
2: If we, if we think of the example of Job, I know that's not exactly possession, but God is giving Satan permission to afflict Job in various ways. And he'll say, but, you know, don't touch him personally. And then afterwards, he says, okay, now you can afflict him personally. But that's different from, like you say, from saying that, hey, no, you can actually have control over him, because you actually have to be someone like Judas for Satan to actually enter his heart.
0: And the accusation of of someone having a demon, being controlled by a demon, is a very severe one to make. And I'm thinking in terms of, you know, our Lord himself being accused by the Jews of of having a demon. You know, so it's really hard to conceive of a Christian as one who has one, lest he be a Judas or something like that.
2: Well, let me me just pitch this question real quick, though. Uh, What do we do with the passage of you are to hand him over to Satan, the immoral man among the Corinthians, deliver him over to Satan?
0: Well, that's in the context of discipline.
2: Well, elaborate. First
0: Corinthians 5, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, uh, yeah, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Yeah, handing him over to his vices and exiling him from the fellowship of the church is meant to to bring him to destruction so that he might come to repentance. That would be the ultimate goal there.
1: That's right. Yeah, and in, in, in the next section of his Pastoral Theology, Walther will deal at some length with a notion of discipline and how it's carried out. I think when we're talking about the notion of physical possession— that is a little bit different in the sense that we're talking about a human body actually being controlled by Satan, which is rather different even from say the notion of temptation or being influenced or or influenced, It's
0: worse than influence. Right, right.
1: It is, it is becoming as it were a robot of Satan, whom he may command at his will. He's not even trying to suggest things anymore. He's simply forcing you to do things. And that is, a, I think, a little bit of a different question from what happens when someone leaves the holy ark of the Christian church and departs for another way, which is the way of death. This is a more limited case of the prince of death, the prince of this world, actually ruling physically the actions and the, the, the speech and things like that of a human being.
2: And and that's fine. I just I just wanted to make sure that we didn't leave any stones unturned. Right. That's all. Right. Sure. So so you're
0: you're a pastor. You have to discern whether someone's possessed or not. And we've talked about these signs and stuff. So what do you do when confronted with someone who is suffering from this affliction? What's what's the what's our response to that? Do we go review all the cheesy eighties movie, horror movies? Do we go for maybe a classier, more grounded seventies exorcism film?
1: I wouldn't know where to start. I <laughs> there are <laughs> woefully underprepared. Yeah, yeah woefully.
0: We should have gave you a, a watching list for this. You
1: know? I know. Here, here I was. I <laughs> I prepared the Walther text, and I missed all the movies. <laughs> Walther names two different methods, and I would say that in this, he is a little unclear. But that is also partly because he's quoting a variety of different authorities, not all of whom explicitly agree with one another. So let's just go through the methods rather than adjudicating what Walter was quoting and why. The first is prayer, and that is a, that is a means by which the pastor prays asking God to release this demonic affliction. Now that is, I think, a that's a mighty thing. The prayer of a righteous man avails much, and you are saying, very rightly, that God can command even demons, that we're not actually dualists, we are monotheists, and God is actually omnipotent, and he can release demonic possession from a person. So prayer is one means, the other is what the Lutherans, whom Walter is quoting, would describe as a heroic faith, and a heroic faith may command demons. Now, the way in which Walther is, I think, rather unfair is that he talks about Roman Catholic exorcism as if it is a priori wrong or superstitious or something like that. It seems to me that he's simply objecting to the amount of ceremonial within Roman Catholic exorcism, that's a separate question, how much ceremonial you have and what you need. You know, it's similar to, well, do you need to use salt to as a symbol in a <laughs> sure. baptismal ceremony? It's like, well, no, you don't. But the issue of commanding a demon is really just an imitation of Christ and the apostles, as we also see in Acts, in commanding in the name of Jesus those creatures, those malevolent creatures, to not to no longer afflict the one whom they are attacking and possessing, and that notion of command does not seem to me to be at all unbiblical
0: right, right. It's that projection of the authority the authority that God has, and then that the the church has by faith uh, I'm, I'm i'm really i'm I'm stopping just sort of saying we have authority over demons just because it smacks of that charismatic language and I, yeah. that I want to avoid, yeah, but I mean, but nevertheless, yeah. the script, scriptural example is commanding them to come out.
1: Yeah, and when when Jesus sends out the apostles, specifically in Mark's gospel, he commands them to go out to preach the gospel and cast out demons.
0: Yeah, and, and you know, we don't. It, it's kind of like absolution. Nobody's, none of our pastors are objecting to that. The language where it says, "I forgive you all your sins," so. You know, and that's bold and direct, and that's a very clear proclamation. You know, so you know why on this end could we not be direct?
2: I think I think if we're going to be biblical about it too, there are cases in the Bible as well where the apostles fail to cast out demons, right? And they are rebuked for their lack of faith in doing so, right?
0: Yeah, and that's where we get we always get a little nervous, you know.
1: Well, I I, I think that is why people like Conrad Danhauer, whom Walter quotes mention having an heroic faith, because that means that it is a faith which is ready to dare to believe that, that Jesus can command these demons, however frightening they may appear to the person who is possessed or to the pastor who is encountering them, but that Jesus is mightier than those things. I, that, that's why they use the term heroic faith. But the notion that we are commanding demons to come out should not be at all controversial. It's it's another aspect, along with absolution, along with training in righteousness, of Jesus' command, the extension of Jesus' authority over all of life and throughout the world and over all men. Exorcism is simply one part of that extension of his authority.
0: You know, and, and possession is not something that we can say authoritatively that it's very common Indeed, it might be rare, but I think we'll, we are seeing and will see a rise of these instances. Right. You look at the witches who are trying to put a hex on Justice Kavanaugh, you know, right now, for example, or or whatever. You, it, we we've seen this in our culture, which went from sort of atheistic light, and then naturally it bounced right back to paganism. And we're starting to see that trend go up. People have lost the fear of God they don't know the scriptures they don't know the faith and so their discernment isn't there so you'll even you'll find christians pulled away by the seduction of of witchery or superstition or other rituals which just open the doors to the demonic yeah. and i would even include you know certain drugs in that list
2: well i think i think this is kind of where walthers coming down on both sides of the question cuz he quotes luther too satan you know may use in uh, especially showy something or the other, in order to increase fear, basically to cause people to turn away from Christ, yeah. and I think that's what Walter is being afraid of here. Yeah. So I don't think we want to come too hard on him on either side, really.
0: But but you know, but uh, back to our back to our cultural things, I, I do think this is something <laughs> that we need to be apprised of. Why does God uh, command such strict punishments for witchcraft? Why did every Christian society severely punish witchcraft, you know, up until modern times? Was it mere superstition? Was it being scared of the liberated and wiser witches, you know, that the, the books want to portray? No, it's because this is a very real and present danger. And it's not something to be played around with. We've turned, you know, witchcraft into children's games as if there were no earthly consequences or heavenly <laughs> consequences to it. And maybe it's time to step back, look at the old books again, and see what they have to say. Any comments on that?
1: Yeah, Walther takes it seriously because he believes it to be a sincere threat to God's people. And the goal of this entire section about pastoral care and the specific section on demonic possession is not to be sensational. It is not to make up maladies which are not there. It's to face the maladies that are actually confronting God's people among which is demonic possession, which terrifies and which intrigues and which fascinates. And to make of that assault on Christ's authority, nothing by the power of Christ's word, in the same way that through consoling the sick and preparing the dying for death, we also attack all the enemies of Christ, the power of his word, which is able To slay every enemy and to guide us to an open heaven. That's always the pastor's job. That tearing
0: down strongholds feeling. Tearing
1: down strongholds. And whether that stronghold is satanic arts or a very great sin which weighs on someone or death itself, uh, Christ's word will tear it down so that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us.
2: Very good. Z, any last words? Yeah, just just to point out again that this dis- and kind of echoing Adam a little bit that this discussion of things like demonic possession in particular should not cause us to be afraid. It should not increase fear because fear would lead us to doubt the word of Christ. But it should help us to recognize that Christ is in control, that His providence is perfect, and that at His word the demons must also flee.
0: Amen. As the scriptures say, "Do not fear." I am with you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, want to see more, check us out wordfitlyspoken.org facebook.com slash wordfitly or twitter at wordfitly. Also check out our discussion group on Facebook wordfitlyposting. That's wordfitlyposting with a P. I'm Willie Grills. With Zell and Heidi, Adam Kuntz, God love you and God bless.